Here we are now with episode number three of our series, You Are the Chosen One. There's a deep old theme in mythology that goes right back to Greek mythology, which is thousands and thousands of years ago. And this is the theme of Pandora's box. And the story of Pandora's box is, well, it was a box that was opened by Pandora. And in Greek mythology, we have these gods that interact with each other. And we have these humans. And we also have sort of the midway people. These are the titans who aren't really gods. Well, they, they were gods. But in the age of Zeus, in the age of the Olympians, then the Olympian gods are the ruling gods and the titans are sort of the leftovers. They've had their turn to rule the world, rule the universe, but now someone else is in office And there are two gods which are titans and they sort of work as heroes of humanity. And one of these two brothers is Prometheus. And the story goes that Prometheus stole fire from Zeus to give to the humans so it could better civilization. And Prometheus is often given the credit for bringing civilization about in many different ways, in the arts and the sciences, and there's even stories of him giving qualities to man and these sorts of things. And his name, Prometheus, is often translated as forward thinking. He thinks forward. He plans for the future. He thinks about how things are going to turn out. And his brother, well, his brother is backwards thinking. Epimetheus. He's always dwelling on the past and he always acts first and then think about it later on. And as it happened, when Prometheus stole fire from Zeus, well, Zeus got angry at him. And he says, why are you helping these humans? And Zeus plans to, well, get back at him. But he doesn't get straight back at him. What he does is he does it in a mischievous way. And it's a roundabout way, a tricky way of seeking his revenge, of getting back at him, because he creates a woman. And this woman is Pandora. And Pandora is, in this story, the first woman. And Zeus actually offers Pandora to Epimetheus as a girlfriend, as a lover. And Epimetheus, being the act-first-think-later man that he is, jumps in for it and goes for it. And then 
Pandora, one day when she's looking around the living room of these two brothers, accidentally opens up Pandora's box. Well, she opens up the book, the box that then later became known as Pandora's box. And the scholars can argue about, well, was it an urn or was it a jar or was it a pot? Was it really a box? Is that the correct translation? But the point is, what happened when that box was opened? And what happened is, a whole bunch of qualities came out flying into the world. A whole bunch of events. A whole bunch of feelings or perspectives. If we can put a modern twist on it. (laughs) And some of the things that came out were actually the things that were really bad for humanity. Things like disease. Things like death. Things like famine. And that is where we have this term, Pandora's box, which is where you open something up and at first it seems good, but then it turns out not quite so much to be so good. And there is a correlation there between Pandora's box and Pandora herself, which is that, well, well, there's two implications with Pandora being the first woman in this story, which is that, well, a woman at first seems great and is wonderful. And Epimetheus loves to be with this woman, jump in, act, don't think. And there's a love affair, there's a romance, there's the honeymoon period. But as time goes on, and if you're with the woman long enough, well, those things start to appear, that other face starts to appear. <laughs> and this is just one interpretation of this one story. So don't take this to be a perspective on women, a final perspective. No, it's just another take. It's just another interpretation. And the other side of it, well, women are gods. A woman is a god. And a woman is the source of all the qualities that are within existence. And men have that to thank for them. So that's the story of Pandora's box. And there are many different versions of it. There are different variations on it. But deeper than that, it gets at a mythological theme which is really throughout all mythology and even throughout all fantasy stories, which is that you come across something, a new place or a new feeling or a new character or new knowledge, and at first it seems great, at first it seems wonderful, And there's so much opening up. But then as you look at it a little bit closer and the things start to progress, then you see that there are some real complications here. There are some real problems here. And there is a dark side to this 
game that we're in between the gods and humanity and civilization. And this theme is one of the themes that comes up in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, there are multiple, as we could say, Pandora's boxes. Because if we think about Harry's story so far, he's found out he's a wizard. Great, you've got magic powers. And then he's gone off to this school and made a whole bunch of new friends. Great, new friends, whole new experiences, wonderful. But the other side of it is, well, there are also, there's also this guy Malfoy that he doesn't like very much. And there's also this evil lord, Voldemort, that's out to get him, that's got something personal with Harry, which he doesn't know much about at this stage. And there's also this teacher that doesn't like him, and he's got to do his grades. So there's a downside to it. And then, of course, he's also got not only his school, but he's got his house. And in his house as Gryffindor, there's some great things. Well, wonderful. He gets to live in a common room, gets to become close with certain friends. But then there's the downside, which is, well, you're competing. And you're in competition with these other houses. And there are all sorts of different downsides to living in a community like that. And this theme, well, it comes up especially in the Chamber of Secrets, because what is the Chamber of Secrets? It's a Pandora's box motive. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. And that means the knowledge is out. Once you have seen something, you can't unsee it. And Harry is just at that age where he's learning things about himself and about life, which will make him a different person. Once you learn certain things as a child, there's no going back. You really do become a new person. And in the story of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, well, the Chamber of Secrets is really put an emphasis on the dark side of Pandora's box. And often Pandora's box is a analogy of all the bad stuff they actually leave out the good stuff that came out first and a modern colloquial expression would be look what you've started or you've opened a can of worms opened up opened up a can of beans you've spilt the beans this sort of thing so coming into knowledge and we actually also see this in the genesis story in christian theology in a, in a funny sort of way, in a very, this might be a bit of a stretch, but the, the coming into knowledge, well, you eat the apple in the Garden of Eden of the tree of life and you will have knowledge of life and death. What a great thing. You want to have knowledge. You want to have awareness. So Adam eats the apple and then as soon as he gains that knowledge, The dark side appears, the shame appears, the fear appears. And that's where the modernity splits with mythology. That's another 
way that this motive comes up. So the Chamber of Secrets is opened in this novel and many things happen because of that which change Harry and move our story forward. Like our previous novel, Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets begins with Harry at the Dursleys' place and at school holidays and he's living there trying to keep out of trouble. And Mr. Dursley has this big business deal going on which means some people are coming over for dinner tonight and everyone has to be on their best behaviour and he's going around with Aunt Petunia and Dudley and they're rehearsing and they're really just saying now you take the coat and what will you say oh very good to meet you what a wonderful evening it is and the whole thing just is it's so fake like who would ever rehearse how they're going to talk to someone when they meet someone. And it's just reeking of, oh, I'm just kissing your ass so I can get a good business deal. And Mr. Dursley is very strict with Harry, saying you're going to be upstairs pretending you don't exist. And that really shows that Mr. Dursley is never going to change. And there's a, a message there for people who have found new worlds. This is a very broad message, which is that when you return back to your origins, where you come where you come from, people aren't going to want to know about your other world. The Dursleys are pre- pretending that Harry hasn't had anything happen to him in this last year. And he's the same old misfit that needs to be shut up in a box and kept in the corner, as he's always been. And it's really impossible for us to fathom how much Harry has experienced in just that one year. He's met wizards, he's met witches, he's met these gargoyles, he's met ghosts, he's met talking paintings... He's met all these different other people. He's met other animals. He's been to the Forbidden Forest. He's had this war with this Dark Lord. And how much would it take for Harry? Let's say the Dursleys actually were open-minded. Even even in a best-case scenario. Let's say the Dursleys are really supportive of Harry. And they say, yes, dear, tell us all about your time at school this year. How long do you think it would take? Harry to explain everything. How many stories do you think he would have to share? How many questions would he have to answer? It would really take, well, it would take weeks, maybe even months. And even then they wouldn't get close to the full magic of what it's like to step into another world, which Harry has. 
But as is the case, well, they've got conservative values and they don't want to hear anything about it. So Harry's living with this other experience that he's had, which is from another world of complete magic, and he can't talk about it to anyone. He can't say anything to anyone about it. When returning to the marketplace, no one wants anything to do with you. And Harry's been writing letters to his friends, but he hasn't had any replies. And that just makes him feel even more alone. It's his only connection with this other world has shut him off. And he's no longer receiving letters from them as well. And he gets very lonely. He gets very sad. It even comes to the point where Harry starts thinking about Malfoy and thinking, if I could just see Malfoy, even that would be reassurance that this other world wasn't a dream. Because you can start to think, was it all a dream? Did this really happen to me? It seems so distant now. Will I ever get to go back? Maybe I won't. And just at this critical moment, Dobby the house elf turns up with a pop. And well, what is Dobby? He's small, he's annoying, he's stupid, he's contradictory, he's getting into things that he shouldn't. He's doing all these things, he's punishing himself. And Harry doesn't know what to do with him. He's a bit uncontrollable. He's jumping all around the place. And Uncle Dursley's, Mr. Dursley's got his business meeting happening downstairs. Happening downstairs. And Dobby the house elf has turned up. And it's great how they do this in the movie, how Harry sneaks down and tries to catch the cake and... Actually, the cake ends up on the head of the house of the business deal guest, and <laughs> then Dobby dis- disappears. <laughs> and of course, Harry is then in trouble. And all this, and well, we also find out that Dobby's been stealing these letters from his friends. And Harry, what? How is he to deal with this? What is he going to do? What is he meant to do with this? This elf has obviously got some idea in its head to mess up Harry's life. And he weans it out of him. Well, he's actually trying to get him not to go back to Hogwarts because something terrible is at her foot. Oh, so he has good intentions. And actually, there's an echo of this, which is how Harry behaved last year when he was trying to protect the Philosopher's Stone. He was really just being annoying and getting in the way of the teachers in many ways. And he might have had good intentions. He might have been successful even in the end. But really this childish sort of running around and trying to get involved in things and failing miserably and getting their assumptions all wrong, like Harry and his friends did in first year, well, that's now echoed in Dobby the house elf. 
who's now doing it to Harry. And one of the things that happens when you get older is you start to see how younger people behave. So Mr. Dursley puts bars on the windows and Dobby disappears and Harry really gets sad and lonely at this time. And he really starts to think that maybe he won't be able to go back to Hogwarts after all that's happened. And even, I believe it's this part in the story when Harry gets in trouble with the Ministry of Magic for using magic when it was the house elf. I think that's in this part as well. So he's also thinking, oh, I'm going to get expelled. And my only chance at getting back to the magical world will be ruined. But just at that time, well, his friends come and bail him out in the flying car. And they tear off the bars of the the window and Harry escapes to the house of the Weasleys. And the Weasley house is a wonderful magic house, very warm and welcoming. And it really is a world of difference. It's a world of part it's a world apart because it has all the wonderful things that the magic people have to offer. And it's so loving and caring and open. And they even have this clock. This is one of those wonderful props that they have. It's a clock that points to things like time to make tea or you're late. And it's got a face of each of the family members. So that shows something about what it's like to be in another world. And, well, what is the sense of time? Because you remember Dumbledore had a different sense of time because of his watch. And that's just something interesting to note. That's just something that sets worlds apart. And the, the Weasley kids are in trouble for stealing the car. And Mrs. Weasley is giving them a big hitting. And she's sort of saying, it's a very, very funny moment where she's saying, your children, this is to the husband, to the father, your children stole your car and then went to bail Harry out completely illegally. And of course, she's thinking, oh, he's going to say very bad job. And he says, oh, how did the car go? (laughs) How was the car? Very nice. (laughs) It's a very funny moment. It just shows the the personality differences between parents. (laughs) And kids are very acute to this. Kids are very aware of what's who's the best parent to ask. Who's more likely to say yes or no, and at what time of day or who or about what subject. Because on some things, dad says yes. On other things, mum says yes. And, well, actually, let's be honest, both, both of them most of the time say no. So we do have to be careful how we calculate these things. So the Weasleys plan a trip out to get their school supplies and they travel by the chimneys or the fireplaces, the flue powder. And Harry's never traveled like this before, so he messes it up a bit. He gets it wrong. He says the wrong shop or something. He mispronounces it. And he ends up in this creepy shop. And they don't know he's there. And he sort of hides and sneaks away for a bit. 
And who would have thought that just by chance, in walks Malfroy and his dad. And his dad is saying something to him. Malfroy's dad is saying something to him like, how could a muggle-born girl like Hermione beat you in grades? And here we see a very different side of Malfroy. We see a bit of his home life. We see why he's a bit bitter towards Harry and his friends. Well, it's because he's got parents that are shaming him. He's got parents that are beating down on him with expectations, judging him, giving him a strong sense of worth or non-worth, unworthiness. And that really says something about the conditioning of Malfroy. Is Malfroy the way he is because he's a bad person? Or is it an attitude he's picked up from his parents? And the other side of this scene, which is very subtle, is the shop owner. And the shop owner and Mr. Malfroy have a talking to. They sort of have a back and forth. And then... Malfroy and his dad and Mr. Malfroy, Mr. Malfroy and Malfroy Jr., they leave and the shop owner's face changes. And he sort of has a cutaway comment about something to do with, oh, it's something that indicates that he's glad the Malfroys have left his shop. And that says something very interesting because it shows that the Malfroys, let's just put it down to this specific situation. The Malfroys are walking around with this attitude and this way of talking. And that triggers something in the people around them. In this case, the shopkeeper which makes the shopkeeper talk in a certain way back to the Malfroys. But the Malfroys don't see the other side of the shopkeeper. They don't see that difference. And Harry's there, and it's not exactly clear that he's aware of this or this is what he's thinking at all. This is just a little cutaway scene in the story. But he sees this and well, we, we start to think, what does that mean? Does that mean that the Malfroys create a reality around them which is bitter? Because this can then feed back onto them. Because then the people around the Malfroys are being bitter, which makes them bitter. And they're just negative. They just start being negative and then that becomes the expectation around them. And people around them learn, oh, they're always negative. The only way I can talk to them is by being negative. The only way I can deal with these people is by being negative. And that really does say something about projection. This is psychological projection with a feedback mechanism. Malfroys are 
walking around projecting their bitterness onto others. Oh, you are such scum. Oh, you are so worthless. Oh, you are not good enough. And really that's in them and they're just putting it onto others. And it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling I want to say self-fulfilling prophecy, but <laughs> we can't use the, the word prophecy. Well, the, 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 word, the word prophecy means something different in this part of the conversation as it will later. <laughs> it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people are negative around them. So Harry catches up with his friends and... They turn up at one of the bookshops, and there's this guy, Lockhart. And this is a a wizard with a really cheesy smile, and he's done his hair, and he's got his blonde hair, and his fancy clothes, and he's doing his photo shoot, and he just loves the publicity, he just loves the fame. And the boys are sort of just like, ugh, who is this guy? You know, Ron and, and Harry... They're just thinking this guy is full of himself. And he's saying, I'll sign your I'll sign my book for you. And there's this moment where Harry gets pulled up and says, Oh look, Harry Potter. I'll show you the fame. This is how it's done. Something like this. But Hermione and all the girls actually do fall for it. They do think there's something nice about him. And they do fall for the looks. They say, oh, isn't he wonderful? Ah, isn't he charming? And this word charm, well, that's actually one of the classes that they do, is charms. And that's something, well, we do have charms. What does it mean to be charmed? Can I put a charm on you? Can I use my charm to ensnare you in some way? And I wonder, it's very clever that the author has used a man rather than a woman for this social dynamic between a, well, what what is the social dynamic? It's the, the front of someone appearing to be charming, but then of course we find out later on that they're really a phony. And people even can see that. People don't fall for that. They can see that, they, that he's a phony. And even say this to Hermione. But she doesn't want to hear of that. She doesn't care of that. She falls for the front. She cares. She falls for the main face that he's showing the world. And I wonder what would have happened. What would it have been like if we'd cast that character or put that role on a female character? What would it have been like for a woman to be wooing all the men and showing all the men how wonderful she looks, how charming she is, how pretty she is. Well, I think that would be too much the story of man and woman, which is why it's very clever that it's a man doing this, because usually it's not the man that is doing the showing off. Usually it's not the man that is doing the wooing. It's the man that chases the woman. And I'm speaking, of course, broadly speaking. And I always feel 
whenever we enter into the masculine feminine territory there's what do we say landmines on all sides and we have to tiptoe our way through so i don't want there to be any misunderstanding here about what we're saying between the differences of man and woman and of course we're only keeping these comments very broad very general there are always exceptions and there's a whole complexity to humans and individuals and their femininity and masculinity which is to be understood on a case-by-case basis and in this case well it's the man and it seems that everyone can see he's a phony except the smart girl the smartest girl and that says something about intelligence because hermione well she's the smartest one she's read all the books she gets top grades She's always got the answers in class. And this means, well, there's a different kind of intelligence in judging a person, particularly romantically. And it's the romance muscle that's being triggered in Hermione. And it doesn't mean she wants to have him as a boyfriend or anything like that. It's just that Something is happening in that. And well, at this age, romance is starting to to tickle. And it might be that some of the students fancy their teachers more than their classmates. And they start to notice other characters, other people in their life. So that's an interesting dynamic there. And then Mr. Weasley and Mr. Malfoy, well, Malfoy then turns up Mr. Malfoy and Malfoy Jr. turn up at this scene where everyone's looking at Lockhart and the Weasley and the Malfoys get into a fist fight and they start arguing and start actually almost having on, having on with each other. And it's like, wow, well, this is, this is intergenerational beef. Are the kids just fighting because their parents fight? Why is it that the parents are fighting on one side of the family and then also on... For the kids, on the same sides, they're fighting. Really does make you wonder, (laughs) where did the kids get it? And this actually, well, it's something that's addressed in the very end of this entire Chronicles. So if we can fast forward six novels from where we are now, and all that happens... You remember that scene, the very final scene of this entire Chronicles where Harry has his family and Malfoy has his family and they're on the station with their kids sending their kids off to school. Well, That's the moment when the intergenerational beef has actually been resolved and still... The kid has this thing, oh, I don't want to be in Slytherin. Oh, I don't want to be friends with that kid. And Harry tries to explain to his son, well, that's not exactly how we feel about these people. But it's a long time before we get to that stage. (laughs) I hope you don't mind us whizzing forward just for that one observation. We'll, We'll mostly... Another thing I'll say just quickly is we don't have to go in chronological order. We go mostly in chronological order, but... Don't be afraid at certain points for us to jump back and forward just for these little things like 
the beef between the Weasleys and the Malfroys and the 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 Harry the Potters. Well, not the Potters, the Harry, the Harry. So they get off on their way to go to school, and Harry and Ron get stuck with the portal, the magic portal that gets them onto the train. So they miss the train and then decide to steal the flying car. And they get to Hogwarts by the flying car and crash it into this tree, which then starts whomping them, the whomping willow, and the tree is bewitched with something that's as a defense to hit the car. And the car throws them out and then gets a life of its own and drives off into the <laughs> into the forest. And it's very funny in the movie when this happens. But the main thing that's happening throughout this whole scene, this whole scenario of how they're going to get to Hogwarts is, well, they're just so afraid of being expelled. They're so afraid that they're going to get kicked out for this. And it goes back to this same thing of, well, they're taking things into their own hand, which they shouldn't. If they'd missed the train, they could have just asked their parents. Things could have been arranged for them to get to school another way. But they did it on their own and it just caused a big mess. And then, of course, this Lockhart character says, well, you were just doing it as a publicity stunt, weren't you? And then, of course, this this other first year turns up and he's taking, he's like the, the fanboy of Harry Potter. He's taking photos of him and following him around and asking for his signature. Colin, I think his name is. And this Lockhart character, he's, he's just got complete projections of saying like, oh, you just want to be famous. Oh, you're just doing a stunt. Oh, learn from me, Harry. Very good try, but not good enough. And he's sort of belittling as well, like, you're not as famous as me yet, Harry. And this is just so annoying. It's, it's such a churning for Harry because he's also got this thing in his head of like, what does everyone think about me? Oh, the whole school hates me. All these people are going to be thinking so badly about me. All my peers and all my friends are going to be thinking terrible things. And I don't want them to be thinking I'm in it for the fame because I'm really not. I really just want to be normal. So dealing with fame and this fear of being expelled and all these dark problems that he has are just churning about in Harry. And, and there's this great scene where Harry turns up to have tea with Hagrid and Hagrid makes light of the situation. He really puts a joke back onto Lockhart. And that's what a good friend is. A good friend can turn your problems into a big joke. They can make your worries about getting famous and the whole school hating you and being expelled. You can just make light of the situation. And that's why Harry is a good friend. Why Hagrid is a good friend to Harry. Another thing that happens is, well... Harry's on the Quidditch team and it turns into something quite serious. And Oliver, the Quidditch captain, turns up one time and he turns the, the training more into like a lecture. It's, in a, it's a grind. It's an ambition. They should have won last year, these sorts of things. We have to win this year. 
we're going to double our training, this sort of thing. And the comment is in that is, well, the thing that Harry is passionate about and talented about and that he loves intuitively, uh, what, not intuitively, what, in, intrinsically, what his, his intrinsic desire to perform with becomes an ambition and becomes a grind. It becomes a, a pain. And this thing, Quidditch, that he loves so much is just, well, it's too much for him to do. It's too difficult. I don't want to do it like this. And so much of what we love as children does turn into that. You can find this in the music learning. If you're learning a musical instrument, classic example of this. A kid is touched by the magic of music. And they say, wow, this is great. I want to learn saxophone or whatever instrument it is. And they get really good in a very short space of time because they're actually really passionate about it and it's all intrinsic motivation but then they get tied up in like well maybe you can get to the next grade and you can get to this level and maybe you can study at a tertiary level if you get good enough and then there's also the encouragement from the parents and the well if I'm going to get encouragement from my parents I should be better if I want my parents love then I really should get better because that's how I've been getting attention from my parents And then it turns into a grind. It turns into, oh, I have to do this amount of practice. I have to practice these things and I must get to this good grade. And it becomes a very serious thing. And this is the year that's starting to happen for Harry and his Quidditch. And the Slytherin team show up at this Quidditch rehearsal, Quidditch practice. And they all have new brooms. And this is so well done in the movies. And Malfoy's the new seeker or the new head guy on the Slytherin team. And Hermione says to Hermione says to the says to Malfoy, at least no one on the Gryffindor team had to buy their way in. They got in on pure talent. Oh now that is a harsh comment. She just snapped Malfoy. But then he turns around and he calls her the dirty word. You know what the dirty word is. I'm not gonna say it. Because I don't want to get in trouble. The N word. The, the, the M, M word. In, in Harry Potter, the M word is the naughty word. In real life, the N word is the naughty word. And that exactly is the correlation here. It's Hermione of color. And that was a sort of side discussion that goes with the Harry Potter story, and it's a common commentary. Common commentary? Is that a term? And, well, this whole thing between race and, well, what can we say? Where, where, where do we start or how far do we go into this? It's like the thing of Lockhart where he gets upset because he's been insulted by someone for something, and then there's Malfoy who gets insulted by someone, and then there's Hermione who gets insulted by someone. And these sort of altercations between the characters all have something in common, which is 
you're insulting their value sphere. It's almost like you're giving a different impression on them, purposely in a negative light. If you want to insult a rich man, insult his wealth. If you want to insult a phony person's fame, insult their fame. And if you want to insult someone with a culturally different background, well, then you insult their culture. And we don't really know how Malfoy feels about his wealth, but it might be that he feels inadequate to get onto the team, which is why that insult resonated so much. And it really shows how different all of these characters are in this world. You know, one's famous, one's culturally different, and one's high class. And the drama is when different people meet, when different people encounter each other. Because we could say that within each person is a world. And when two worlds meet each other, there's drama, there's tension. There's explosives. And that's, what, that's what's happening with these insults. Is that people aren't recognizing their differences. And people are feeling bitter about it. People aren't admitting to their own sense of not feeling good enough. Not feeling worthy enough. So it's very clever how the author has created this world with such interesting characters and made them interact with each other in these ways. And there's another side to this, because the mudblood, which is the naughty word, is the wizard who had parents who were not wizards. And Harry gets in trouble one day for just something. He might have been muddy or something. And he ends up in Filch's office. And Filch is sort of one of the groundskeepers, or like the janitor, or the, the, the custodian of the school grounds. He's not really a teacher. And we didn't talk about him much in this when we were going through the first novel. But basically, in the first novel, he's a real grump. And he's always getting the kids into trouble. And he's always giving the kids detention. And he's always chasing after them, telling them, oh, you're doing the wrong thing. And he's sort of got this snarl on his face and he's really mean. But here, at this point in our narrative, Harry ends up in his office and Filch get call- gets called away by chance. And Harry, as it happens, takes a little bit of a sneaky snoop around the office and he finds a piece of paper which has something to do with learning magic for beginners. And Harry realizes, well, this is what Filch is doing. This is for him. But why is he learning magic for beginners? 
he's an older man. And he works out that, well, Filch is what they call a squib. And squib is a term like mudblood, except it's the reversal. So the mudblood is the wizard or witch, which has non-magical parents. And the squib is someone who has magical parents, but they themselves are not magical. And this puts Filch into a different light in Harry's mind, at least momentarily, because he sees a hidden side of him. He sees the vulnerable side. And you can see why someone would be roaming around the school grounds feeling bitter and being angry towards the students if all the students, well, they're better at magic than him. And Harry wonders, well, why didn't he integrate back into the muggle world? Why did he stay in the wizarding world? Why did he stay in this world of magic? And it is a thing, it is a fact of each world that there are people that don't fit in. There are people that are minority groups. So that's another character. That's yet another character which has a complexity of their outward appearance and then their backstory telling something very different as we see in Lockhart, who has this outward appearance of being all charming and the hero of the story, and really he's good for nothing. And the story of the Malfroys and their bitterness, particularly Malfroy Jr., who really just wants to be on the Quidditch team. In one way of looking at it, he just wants to play Quidditch. He just wants to be good. He just wants his parents' love. And if it takes buying the whole team brand new brooms for him to get that, then he's going to take that chance. And for Hermione, who is a very intelligent, very bright, really the brightest wizard in the whole year, and in some ways in the whole school, she's just brilliant in every way. She's so smart. She knows so much. She has a vast knowledge. And yet she has a culturally different background. She has a different upbringing. And if you point that out in a negative way, it's going to hurt her. And Filch, well, he's got this derogatory term ascribed to him. The squib. It doesn't sound very nice, does it? This, these words mudblood and this word squib, they're very derogatory. Just how they sound on the mouth, how they land on the ears. It's just, oh, I don't want to be called that. Squib, it sort of sounds like a, like a squid, like you're slimy or ugly or just something not very nice. But really... Filch is just, well, he's just trying his best. 
And we can get deeper into this and we can say, well, is Filch really a good person or not? Well, that's a deeper question. At this stage in the story, we're just seeing the characters from different angles and learning that people are more deep than we see. And we're hoping, well, as Harry grows, he learns these things. It's not exactly clear if he's learning these things. And these things are there in this story for us to learn. So I think that'll be enough to go through for today. We didn't really get to any of the main plot, but we will. These are just a few scenes that I thought I'd share. We'll get to the main plot of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets next episode. But for now, before you race off and listen to it, (laughs) which you might or might not, Just slow down for a bit. Slow yourself down. Slow down your thoughts. Slow down your movements. And just take some time to sit down. Stop what you're doing. And close your eyes. And just sit quietly for a few moments. And that's all I have to say for now.